Let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And this morning, as you're turning in your Bibles, uh, the sermon is called The Primacy of Preaching. Uh, This title comes from a lecture by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a Welsh preacher. Maybe you've heard of him. I quite enjoy listening to the old uh, Welshman. I think he died in 1981, but uh, you can still get his sermons, and I enjoy listening to him. But of course, as we come to the end of the year, somehow I was reminded about the primacy of preaching. You can almost hear his Welsh voice in my head from that lecture that I listened to, to probably 20, oh man, 25 years ago. And I believe it's of central importance, and that which is of central importance is central for us as the church to review this understanding of the primacy of preaching in the church. And I want to go to Acts 6 particularly because the issue of the primacy of preaching came up, and you will see as we read God's Word why that is. So let us enter God's Word In Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom, we will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the study of your word this morning. And that, oh, our hearts would be tuned into you speaking to us through your word. So as we as a community would love you even more deeply by knowing you and serving you. Oh, work in us by the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. That question, that question that came to the heart of Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Jesus said to Peter. Over that, those coals where he had been cooking the fish and the 153 fish had been already counted on the shore. And the Lord Jesus Christ was reinstating his friend Peter to the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he asked those three questions, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And that's, of course, three times he denied knowing him, didn't he? 
do you love me? Of course, each time, Peter says, yeah, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response each time is, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. That's a clarion call in the soul of Peter, isn't it? Do you love me? You know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And of course, that's what we see in the ministry of the Apostle Peter, a man who loves Jesus. And it's feeding the sheep. But in the hustle and bustle of church life in Jerusalem, and I think this is the hustle and bustle of life itself for every Christian, but especially for a growing church that was growing by leaps and bounds, and in one day, in fact, it had grown by 3,000. Thousands more had been added to that number as well. And of course, they were doing basically everything. They were taking the care of the administration of the offerings and the finances that would go to both Grecian and Hebraic-speaking Jewish widows. The problem is, a church growing this quickly is going to take energy away from other things, isn't it? Things that were of primary importance, which the apostles recognized right away as what? The preaching of the Word of God, the ministry of the Word. They saw this problem and this squabble in the church not only dividing the church but also distracting them from their primary call of the ministry of the Word and prayer. So this is a very practical moment for the apostles and the church to reprioritize or to prevent from their priorities being diverted into other good things. The waiting on tables is not any way diminishing the work of mercy because diakonia is where we get the word deacon from. Sounds similar, doesn't it? Diakonia, deacon. And of course, these deacons were men full of the Holy Spirit. These deacons were men full of faith. These deacons, it appear as well, were pretty good with their Bible. You know Stephen, right? Chapter 7. That guy's good with his Bible. He knows the living God. He knows the priority and the primacy of preaching the gospel in the local church. And so does Philip, because what do we know Philip as? Not only as probably a diaconia, a deacon, but he's Philip the evangelist. He too had an ability to preach the gospel. He too understood the priority of the church, even though he was in an administrative capacity of mercy ministry in the local church. So within this moment in the church, we have a, not so much a reprioritizing, but a preventing of having their priorities diverted. And what was the result of that? Not only was the church called to choose seven men among them. Did you notice that? It's the church of Jerusalem that chose the seven men. A wonderful congregational meeting appears. At least my Baptist friends would go in that direction. This is a wonderful congregational meeting. And of course, they choose these seven men. And we look at verse 7. What does it say? So the word of God was hindered. 
What does it say? Spread. The word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. My goodness, even the priests at the temple and the surrounding villages are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, this is a celebration, but I do believe the reprioritization was critical to that so that the apostles would continue in the ministry of the Word and prayer. That priority hasn't changed, has it? The priority of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ from all of Scripture, because when, you, when they preached in the first century church about Jesus Christ, where did they go constantly? What text did they constantly go to? The Old Testament, didn't they? They went from Moses, and they went to the prophets, and they even went to the Psalms, right? The writings, to demonstrate that Jesus is the Mashiach. He's the Christ, the anointed one. That's how the gospel would have been explained to that generation, and it has not changed since. Because when you go to a New Testament text, you'll notice that often Old Testament texts are being quoted, so it is beneficial for the church who is studying the Word and seeking to know the living God and His voice would go to the Old Covenant because God speaks there too, doesn't He? he that is also His all-breathed Word, right? That's where God speaks. And the mission is to preach the gospel. I'm going back to Jesus. Just before his ascension, Jesus was very clear that he was calling them to make disciples. Therefore, go, or going, and make disciples of all nations, all ethne, all ethnic groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we see that the mission is to preach the gospel, and not just to preach the gospel superficially, but to teach every disciple to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. How much has Jesus commanded? That's a lot. Just the New Testament alone. But isn't the Old Covenant speaking about him? The law and the prophets and the writings? That's a lot of teaching, isn't it? Nothing superficial about the mission to preach the gospel, both to the lost and to the found. And how would they do that? Well, in the power of the Spirit. Remember Jesus said right before his ascension, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The scope of the mission is magnificent, isn't it? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I know you don't want to go there. I know you don't want to go to Samaria because I guarantee you they did not want to go to Samaria. And to the ends of the earth. That's how big the field is. It's all peoples, all ethnic groups. But it's that spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is coming. And 10 days later, from the moment of his ascension to Pentecost is 10 days. Ten days. And when the Spirit came and shook the house with that rushing wind and that 120 
tongues of fire came upon all those in the upper room, and they began to speak in various intelligible languages. What is the first act that comes from the mouth of the apostles, and specifically the apostle Peter? The preaching of Christ and him crucified and resurrected. The gospel. Quoting the Old Testament from Joel to the Psalms. And of course, he's calling them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will receive the Holy Spirit because they were cut to the heart, weren't they? By the power of Peter, by the power of the other men that were assembled in the upper room, or by the power of the Holy Spirit. Of course, you know the answer is, it's the power of the Holy Spirit. You could call the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit, working through the ministry of the apostles and his church. We can see very clearly that the Holy Spirit is very concerned with the preaching of the gospel, with the preaching of God's word. And we ought to be as well. It is our primary task. And not just to teach the gospel superficially, but to teach, it to, the, to teach it to the deepest depths. To not be satisfied ever until we cannot breathe with how much we know about God. Because to know Him is to love Him. You cannot love someone you do not know. You really can't. You cannot love someone you do not know. Many people are dying all across the globe constantly. You hear the bad news and you're barely moved by the news, aren't you? You're barely moved by it. But you can love someone you know. And your love for someone you know, the deeper you know them, the deeper your love can be. And God wants us to experience His deeper love so that we might love more deeply. That's why the primacy of preaching is so important. It's not about knowledge. It's not about information. It's not about download. It's not about how much education you have. It's about knowing God because you want to love Him. And you want others to love Him and glorify Him. Because there's nothing more important to know in all the universe than God. There's, there's nothing, as I've said before, there's nothing more practical than knowing God. There's nothing more practical than knowing God. In our age, we want this idea of practice. We're all into the how. But to get to the how, you have to know the what and the why, don't you? Because you really won't be able to do the how very well unless you know him. And that's what the church should ought to desire, is that we want to preach Christ and him crucified and resurrected for the whole of God's word so that God's people would grow in the knowledge and conviction of the wondrous love of God in Christ Jesus. And you see this in the church. This church, oh, they are committed to the gospel. They are committed to the preaching of the gospel. The early church clearly was centered on the preaching and teaching of the gospel. When you hear the word preaching and teaching, I don't think there's a, there's a pretty fine line between preaching and teaching, because the preacher if they're teaching, we'll always go to preaching. Because the word that we are handling is a word that calls for decision, doesn't it? A word that calls for action. A word that calls for response. So if you're teaching the word of God, you cannot help but preach. And call people 
to respond, to be rebuked and to be corrected and to be trained up. It's you're going to respond. So I'd keep those very tightly together, preaching and teaching. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, they said they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing we learned about the early church as they gathered, those 3,000, along with the 120 in the upper room and maybe the 500. We can add them along as well. What we learned about them is they were committed to the apostles' teaching about Jesus Christ. That's what they were committed to and to the fellowship. So they were together. They weren't segmented all over the place. No, they were in together, fellowshipping together in koinonia and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And what we learn in the book of Acts is the apostles, Peter and John specifically, as they were arrested for the healing of a man, well, born, well, not born, he was lame. He couldn't walk, and they healed him, and he was beyond the age of 40 years old, and everybody was impressed by the miracle. But Peter and John wanted them to hear the word and wanted them to know this is the Lord Jesus Christ at work, not us men at work. Well, they're arrested, and they're called to be silent, and this is what they say, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop but speak about Jesus. You can't shut our mouths. You can't gag our mouths. You can't cut our tongues out. We'll still speak. Didn't the Belcher Confession talk about that? Didn't Guy Debray talk about that? You can gag our mouths. You can cut out our tongues. You can kill us, but we will not stop proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the disciples. They, they, they could not be stopped even by threats. And even under threat, the church prayed for greater boldness to preach the word. You're being th- threatened to hold your mouth, to be silent. And the church is praying for greater boldness. Listen to Acts chapter 4, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. With great boldness, stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Boldly. Knowing it could cost them. In fact, we know that the first martyr right here in this text we read to begin with is Stephen himself. Executed for preaching. That's right. The first martyr was executed while he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who was there enjoying the scene? None other than Saul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. And he was the great persecutor of the church as it scattered And as the church scattered for its life, what were they doing? As they were running from village to village and place to place, as Philip was pushed farther north into Samaria, what was the church doing? Guess? You want to guess? Preaching the gospel. Uh, You hear this in Acts chapter 4, 8 verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. This is a people that is absolutely, utterly convinced by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are willing to speak it everywhere at any expense for the furtherance of Christ's name in the world. That's why it must be primary. 
the preaching of the gospel, not just in pulpits, but in classrooms, in the public square, in universities, in, in our schools, in the world. That Christ might be known in all the nations as he, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, is making disciples. Now, I want us to look at servants who preach the gospel, two servants particularly, from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One you will know as Jeremiah. You might know him as a weeping prophet, but I'd like to call him the persevering preacher. And, of course, there is Paul, the unlikely preacher. we got two preachers. One, a persevering preacher, and the other, an unlikely preacher. Now, some of you know the ministry of Jeremiah. It was a miserable one. Uh, he wrote a book called Lamentations. Lamentations is not a book that's very happy, except the middle part. It's excellent, wonderful. It's this wonderful, glorious light that shines for and bursts through the darkness of his lamentations. But the rest of it, ah, it's pretty miserable. But as he begins his ministry, this is what the word Jeremiah hears from the Lord in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 17. Get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified them of them or I will terrify you before them. I mean, this is not an option, is what he's saying to Jeremiah. You're my man. I'm calling you. I'll protect you, but don't be afraid or I'll make you afraid. He continues on. This is mostly encouraging after this. Today, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. So he's, he's encouraged. Be bold. Be courageous like Joshua. Go into the city. Yes, preach judgment, but when God preaches judgment in the Old Testament, when the prophets preach judgment on the streets of Nineveh or the streets of Jerusalem, it's a call to repentance. The Ninevites repented, but the people in Jerusalem did not because we know that the ministry of poor Jeremiah was very unfruitful. We know of two converts he had, an Ethiopian eunuch and Barach who wrote some things for him, and that's it. This is what he says a little bit later in his word. Now, again, Jeremiah is the most hated man in Jerusalem in his ministry. The most hated man in all of Jerusalem. They probably hate him more than they hate the Babylonians, their enemies. This is what he said, and this is a complaint. He's complaining to God, and you know what? The prophets can complain like no other. They know how to complain. Right? They always go up, go to God. The, the psalmist, the same thing. They go to God, don't they? they? And they know how to complain, and here we have, wow, it's a complaint. Listen to it. Oh, Lord, you deceive me. First, right there, you're going, what? You're saying that to God? Yes, he did. You deceived me. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Wherever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of God, of the Lord, has become, brought me insult and reproach, reproach all day long. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. You hear that? It's a fire in his heart. Even though he wants to stop preaching, even though he is so discouraged, there's this fire in him, this fire 
to preach the gospel. I hear many whispering, terrors on every side. Report him. Let's report him. Let's cancel him is what they're saying. All my friends, except let's cancel him ultimately by killing him. And this is what he says about his friends. You know you're having a bad day when this is said. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a, might, like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. He's going back to God's promise to him. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. O oh Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord. Give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hand of the wicked. Amen. Uh, that's the man. And actually right after this, he says, I wish I had never been born, basically. This is a man whose heart is in in pain because the priority of preaching God's word can bring derision, can bring suffering. In fact, we know that from the apostle Paul, he would have to suffer for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in ways that he could never have imagined when he began following Jesus. But he probably could imagine if he went to Jeremiah, the potential that the people of Israel would not listen to him like they did not listen to Jeremiah. Yeah, the preaching of the gospel does not necessarily make friends, does it? No, no, not at all. It can often make enemies. But let's go to Paul, an unlikely preacher. In fact, the Damascus Road could be called the story of an unlikely convert. I mean, this is the man who hated Jesus with a passion. This is the man who broke out the great persecution. This is a man who was so desirous of persecuting Christians that he was willing to get paperwork in order to go to Damascus to bring Jews who have been following Jesus back to Jerusalem for a religious trial. There was no one more zealous than Paul, no greater Jew of Jews from the tribe of Benjamin. This is a man who hates the church of Jesus Christ. And everybody knows it. Ananias knows it. Ananias is told, hey, there's this guy named Paul. He's in town, right? Or Saul, he's in town. And uh, he's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Ananias is going, nah, I've heard some bad things about him. I'm not going to him. And I love what God says to Ananias. And this is, again, the word of God has supremacy over his people. Go. It's not an option. You go, Ananias. This man will be my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. He's the guy. This is the most unlikely of preachers. Yes. And he will do the most unlikely of missions, the conversion of Gentiles, who he hates. But you see, the gospel changes the heart, doesn't it? It changes the heart to love what God loves. And Paul was a man who was changed to love what God loves. In fact, he did come before kings, King Agrippa, and then the proconsul Festus in Caesarea. And at the end of his sermon, at the end of his defense, which was a sermon, this is what he says to Agrippa King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? 
Because he's Jewish. Do you believe, part Jewish, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. I love how, I love Paul the preacher. He's, he's just going after Agrippa, and this is what he says. Then Agrippa, oh, this is, I know you do, and then Agrippa responds to Paul. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that God that uh, that God that I pray God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. <laughs> you you hear this man? I want you to be like I am. I want you to be forgiven. I want you to know who you are. I want you to know how much you're loved. I want you to have an eternal future with an eternal king. And these are men who are not his friends. And he says, I want everyone to be like me, but without these chains. <laughs> the unlikely convert who became an unlikely preacher went to a church. Well, he went to a meeting. And I want to look at this too. Again, the priority is preaching, isn't it? in his life. And he wanted to make his own ministry, the history of his own ministry, a priority for the elders in Ephesus. And so he has this meeting in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, and this is what he says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Holy Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardship are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Do you hear that? The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul was a man that was, had to preach. He had to proclaim good news. He wanted this to be an example for them. He wanted them to go back to Ephesus and not forget who they were. They were emissaries of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the priority. And we think, oh, we don't need to hear about this priority. Yes, we do. All the time. All the time. The church is always straying from the husband who loves her. It's always happened through every century, through every generation. And we need to be here again of the primacy of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in our generation. And you know it's a priority because the last letter of the Apostle Paul is to Timothy. You remember his spiritual son? And the last charge he makes, and it's a powerful charge he makes to Timothy, the last one, 
the most powerful charge in my experience of reading Paul that Paul ever makes to any single human being or to the church. It's to Timothy, and I want you to, I want you to hear this, this word. 2 Timothy 4, 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, he's calling God Almighty, Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. And this is a young man that has a bit of timidity. He's got a timid problem. He can be afraid of men. And yet he says, preach the word. Then he goes on. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. But you will put up with sound doctrine. Right, Timothy? Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. Preach the word, my son. I'm dying. We know he's, he's a man on death row. He is soon to die. And he's saying, the most important thing I can tell you is preach the word. And why preach the word? Because all scripture is God-breathed. It comes from him. It's his letter to the world. It's his light in the darkness. And you need to preach it. So that people can be taught and rebuked and corrected and trained up in righteousness so that every man and every woman might be fully equipped for every good work. And if you're not preaching the word, they won't be fully equipped for every good work. So son, preach the word. Be afraid of no one. Don't be an ear tickler. Don't try to woo people. Preach it. Preach Christ and Him crucified and resurrected because the gospel is life that must be preached. Remember what Paul said? Maybe you don't remember. Second, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. It says this, Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe! Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me if I do not preach how men can go from the darkness of eternal death to the light of life in Christ Jesus forevermore. Woe to me. You see, the gospel is about life, and it must be preached. The church must never be silent. And why? Because there is a glorious end of preaching the gospel, isn't there? There's a glorious end. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who long for his appearing. The crown of righteousness. Eternal life. So preach the word, Timothy. Preach the word, O church of Jesus Christ. Preach the word in season and out of season, in hardship. And when the world hates us, preach the word. 
And brothers and sisters, this is what I know. Jesus is the light of the world. And where does Jesus reign by his spirit? Where does he reign? Where does he reign by his spirit? In you. You are the light of the world. This is what Jesus says. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. You are a light that cannot have a bowl over. No, it must shine. It must shine the gospel of Jesus Christ to every generation, in every place, in every home, in every square inch of this planet till Christ returns. So the primacy of preaching, the priority of preaching in practice, what does it look like? Well, even in the early church, some people were in the habit of not meeting together. So this is the first thing I would say. Please come morning and evening, every Lord's Day, that's right, to hear the preaching of the Word. Be present, morning and evening. Second, come morning and evening filled up with the Word. Be prepared. Stoke the coals of your soul before you enter the worship space. Read your word. Get up in the morning and prepare. And before you come, read your word again. Maybe read the text that's going to be preached on before you come. That's right. Be prepared. Not only present, but be prepared. Third, come morning and evening expecting to hear from God. The word that we preach, the word in our pews, and written upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit well, it's, a, it's God's Word. It's a living Word. It's living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And you and I ought to expect to hear from God. We ought to expect to hear of His encouragements and His rebukes and His corrections and His training up in righteousness so that we might be fully equipped as we go out these doors for every good word. Is that you? Are you expectant when you come to this sanctuary to hear from God, not the preacher? To hear from God. I am simply a mouthpiece. That's it. Well, we want to hear from God. And lastly, fourth, take up the word of God morning and evening, daily, on your own or with others. So have a plan. Pre be present, prepared, empowered, and have a plan. The primacy of preaching is not simply only about this moment when a man comes into the pew, but it can be at your home. It can be in a hospital visit. It can be on a mission field far away in another land. But the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be preached. And I actually, uh, I have about 50 of these flyers for reading through the Bible in a whole year called Bible Eater. That's right. Take up the word of God and eat like the scroll of Jeremiah. He had to eat the scroll. Well, there are some study guides that should be in the Narthex, and afterwards I'll talk a little bit about the study guides and what I'm going to be doing throughout the year, which is I think some of us need a support group when it comes to Bible reading because we're so pathetic at it. Just, just, I'm just being honest, brothers and sisters, okay? We need each other to encourage each other to run the race well. And so I'm planning on Sunday evenings, once a month, for those that are willing to come together, and we'll see how God uses it, to... Talk about God's word that we've been reading, how we've been edified, to edify each other through the word of God in order to encourage each other to run the race to know God. Because knowing God is at the heart of all of it, isn't it? Because if you do not know God, you cannot love God. And the more you know God, the more you can love God and love others. And that is my hope. Bible reading is not about knowing information or checking boxes. It's about knowing God and knowing yourself and experiencing the love of God in a deeper, wider,
an ever-increasing way. (sighs) Brothers, sisters, can you say with Paul this morning, you know I love you to Jesus? You know I love you. Even in all our struggles, does he know you love him? He knows, right? May God bless you in this year as you seek to know him and to love him and to know how much you're loved by him. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Bless your church. Bless them mightily in the reading of your word. Encourage them even in their failures. Pick them up. Again, set us on our way as we race, as we run the good race of faith following Jesus. To you, O God, here be glory and hear our prayers. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.